All right, how's everybody doing today? We got a, we got a big crew in here today. Uh, good to see everybody. Happy Happy Wednesday. Well, last week uh, we had an interesting lesson. We talked about we talked a lot about grace, you know, on how and, and how to make sure that as we're talking about the grace that comes through Christ, that, that we also make sure we tell the whole story of the gospel. Uh, we don't just tell the things, the good things we get to enjoy, but we also talk up front when we talk about the gospel about the cost to follow Christ, uh, making sure we all understand that there is a cost to follow Christ. And that cost is always worth it, well worth it, uh, especially as we understand the complete picture of the grace of Christ. But there is a cost to follow Christ. My application to you guys at the end of the class last week was to make sure that as you had the opportunity to share the gospel with someone this week, that we talked about the full gospel. We talked about the cost to follow Christ. So interesting enough, I had a unique, a unique opportunity to apply my own lesson this week. Uh, my kids, I've got, for those of you guys who don't know, uh, I've got two eight-year-olds. I've got uh, twins, Samantha and Easton, one daughter, one son. And they've been asking me for months about baptism. Uh, I think they're fascinated by the whole dunking of the water process. Uh, but they've been wanting to get baptized for forever. And I've kept holding them off, holding them off, because I wanted to make sure they truly understood the entire nature of the gospel. Well, as we've been talking about it more and more, um, we had some really long conversations this week. I got to the point where I really felt like they understood. They understood the commitment that they are telling me they wanted to make. We do a great deal here at our church for, in our kids' ministry called Next Steps for Kids. And if anyone's seen that before or been a part of it before, it's just great. We, we bring in kids, kind of like my kids, who are asking about baptism, asking about the gospel, asking about these things. And they get to sit down with pastors, and pastors walk them through the depths of the gospel. And they don't sugarcoat a thing. We, 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 we make sure anybody, uh, no matter how old you are, really understands the full depths of the gospel uh, here at our church. So they got out of that class, and, and I felt like they understood. But so then I said, you know what? I need to have a talk with them about the cost, the cost of following Christ. I remember some guy, some really wise, good-looking guy talking about that last week. Uh, and I said, I need to, you guys didn't have to laugh at that. We need to talk about the cost. So, so I had a discussion with them, and I'm going, how can I explain this to two eight-year-olds? So I started with my son, and I go, are you prepared for the cost of this commitment? And he goes, yeah, Daddy, I'm ready. And I go, well, let's, let's, let's play out this scenario. I go, here in a couple of years, you play baseball. And here in a couple of years, your buddies are going to be on a baseball team uh, that's going to start going to tournaments all over the place, all over the state, uh, to Texas, to, to Louisiana. They're going to start doing these things. And, and those tournaments, that with those teams have all your friends on it. It means you're going to have to start missing church on Sundays. And I go, are you prepared to not be on that team with all your friends because you feel like it's going to take you away from, from your church, from your relationship with God? And he looks at me, and, and my, my son always gets really serious, and he goes, Daddy, I'm, 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 I'm ready for that. And I go, well, what if your friends give you a hard time or you lose some friends on it? And he goes, I, God's the most important thing in my life, Daddy. And I said, that's great. So then Easton, my son, he goes, okay, I, I understand this game. So he turns to my daughter, Samantha. And he goes, Samantha, Samantha's learning piano at the moment, and she's very excited about it. She goes, Samantha, or he goes, Samantha, let's pretend that you're a famous concert pianist, right? And, and you're playing for, for people, for thousands of people all over the world. Uh, but, but when you play, it means you're at to travel, and you won't be able to be at church on Sunday. Are you willing to give that up? And, and I'm, I'm sitting there going, all right, son, have this conversation with her, you know? So I'm just listening. 
And Samantha, she, she, she's a bit more, she thinks a bit harder than my son does. She doesn't quite wear her emotions on, his, on her sleeve like my son does. And so she thinks about it a little bit and thinks about it a little bit. And I'm going, oh, my gosh, she's thinking too long uh, about this answer. She thinks about it. She goes, hmm, I think I'll just play piano at church. And I'm going, oh, that's just great. You know, and I'm, I'm just so proud of her. I'm so proud of her. She goes, she goes and I'll just play my concerts on Saturdays. And so, so I said, that's great. So anyway, I, I want to say even... You know, the applications we learn in here, don't forget the fact that sometimes these things we learn, we can simplify them just a little bit, and the lessons that we learn will apply to the 8-year-olds just as they will the 80-year-olds. And, and so just, just know the gospel rings true to everybody. Uh, and I was just so pleased that I got to go through that with my kids this week. I got to pray with them this week, um, scheduled their baptism for November 17th. So, so I, as a, as a dad, I am incredibly, incredibly proud and, and happy to get the opportunity to baptize my kids. So that was last week's lesson. This week, or, or last week, we also made sure we understood that, that in the book of Ruth, we're understanding a story being told in the Bible that's kind of at that surface level, uh, but there's also an underlying story, a story being revealed that we need to understand. That story was a story of Jesus Christ's grace that we learned last week. The same thing happens here uh, in chapter 3. You know, just like in chapter 2 where we learned that Ruth is symbolic of us and Boaz is symbolic of Jesus Christ, uh, the same thing flows through in chapter 3. Just instead of a lesson on, on grace of Christ, this week in lesson 3, we're going to talk about redemption, absolute redemption. And, and I, I want you to see that that. 1,100 years plus, you know, 1,100 years before Christ, God is giving us a story that is revealing a full picture of the gospel narrative. If we ever wanted to understand how to actually talk about the gospel, how to share the gospel, what are the core tenets of the gospel, he's revealing it to us right here, right now, so long before it ever comes to fruition, letting us know that this is going to play out. So this week, we're going to talk about redemption. Now, for some reason, as I was preparing this lesson and I was thinking about redemption, uh, I, I went back to a time in my life before I knew Christ very well. And I, I say that. I've, I just went back to a song that I, I thought about. And I've been making fun of the Beatles in here a lot. And that's just bad. That's bad for my career. Um, so, so, but when I thought about redemption, uh, what kept running through my head was probably one of the most famous songs about redemption, and that's Bob Marley's Redemption Song. And you guys are probably like, we've never even heard of Bob Marley. A few of you have heard of Bob Marley before. Bob Marley's a fascinating guy. Uh, he was probably one of the most influential figures in the Rasta faith, so the, the faith that really came out of, of Jamaica. Uh, there's all kinds of theological principles with that faith that I disagree with, uh, one of them being that cannabis is a great way for a sacrament uh, in the church. I don't think that's the right sacrament. Uh, that's not something we're going to do here at Crossings. Uh, but, you know, but he has some interesting thoughts on redemption that come through the lyrics of this redemption song. And I find when we talk about redemption in the church, that a lot of times people actually don't know what that word means. Uh, to prove it, I asked my wife last night, and don't no one tell my wife uh, that I'm telling you this, but I go, hey, Kim, you know, who's, who's got a college degree, an educated woman, I go, what, what's the word redemption mean? And, and she completely butchered it. And I go, oh, okay, that's great. And she goes, well, did I get it right? I go, no, no, you didn't. Uh, but I know that if I explain to you why you're wrong, we're getting into an argument about this. So I just went on down the road. But people really don't understand what redemption means. So let me read you these lyrics. And we're going to diagnose these lyrics just a little bit to help us understand what redemption actually means. 
So in the song, the redemption song, it says, Old pirates, yes, they rob, sold I to the merchant ships, minutes after they took from the bottomless pit. But my hand was made strong by the hand of the Almighty. We forward in this generation triumphantly. Won't you help to sing these songs of freedom? Because all I ever have is redemption songs. Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. I disagree, but anyway. None but ourselves can free our minds. Have no fear for atomic energy, because none of them can, toss, can stop the time. How long shall they kill our prophets while we stand aside and look? Oh, some say it's just a part of it. We've got to fulfill the book. Won't you help to sing these songs of freedom, because all I ever have, redemption songs. Redemption songs. And if you look in here... Bob Marley talks a little bit about this this thought about emancipating yourself from slavery, right? Uh, Trying to buy your freedom, ransoming your freedom. And if you think about redemption very, very simply, that's pretty much what it is. Redemption is meant to be something that where we are buying something back, right? Buying it back or, or we're liberating something with a ransom. Right, think about it that simply. Uh, in terms of theo- from a theological concept for us, this term indicates us being freed from our sin. Right? Redemption is when a price has been paid for our sin. Christ talks about this fairly bluntly uh, in the New Testament where he says, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. So think, just think about the imagery of this, that you are in chains and someone has come and purchased you for a price to, to take you out of those chains. Or you've been in bondage, you've been, you've been sold to something and you have been bought back, you have been redeemed. You know, this is what it means when we say to redeem a coupon, something has been brought back for value. What's that? Yeah, pawn shop, right? Just think about that. I mean, we use this word a lot, but a lot of times when you use a word a lot, you kind of forget what it, what it actually means. The Latin root of the word redemption, and redemption being an English word, the Latin root of it is to buy back, right? To buy back. So when you hear that word as we go through this lesson today, I want you to think about that, to be bought back. In Exodus, in the Exodus story, uh, you, see, you see God use this whenever he's talking about bringing his people out of Israel. In Exodus 6, 6 through 7, it says... Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, right? So he's talking about they are in slavery. I am redeeming you from from that slavery that you are in. We see that physically happen in the Exodus the Exodus story is an entire motif that goes throughout the entire Bible. We can see the entire story of Jesus Christ fitting that motif. Where just like God redeemed his people out of Israel, Jesus Christ is redeeming us from our sin. So when we think redemption, make sure you understand that language. Before we get into the text, the other thing you're going to see in here is that the vehicle that God chooses to use to tell this story of redemption to us is the vehicle of marriage. You know, of marriage. He uses the marriage of Ruth and Boaz to redeem Ruth and Naomi from the situation that they're in. And again, I apologize. If you hadn't read through the rest of Ruth, they get married. Uh, that happens a little bit later on. But, but they're going to get married, and, and that's the vehicle he uses. Uh, so I wanted to just maybe kick it off here before we get into the text. And I want, I want to talk just a little bit at the groups as to why we think it is that we see this this example of marriage being used all throughout the Bible 
to, to talk about these intimate relationships between God and his people. You know, because we, we do, we see marriage used throughout. We're going to see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. We see it very vividly here in the story of Ruth. But why do you think it is that God uses marriage to talk about his relationship with his people as much as he does? Just talk about that for a minute and we'll come back. All right, we'll start bringing it back to the group here for a minute. And uh, I assume, I assume that, that everyone kind of feels the same way and that the reason God uses marriage as much as he does is because it's such a painful relationship between God and man. I'm just kidding. I, I'm so glad my wife doesn't attend this class. A- any thoughts on this? Why, why, why is it that God uses marriage as much as he does? Because well, we he does it all throughout. Spouse, you never listen to him? God, so. You figure, yeah, God, God's just playing that up, you know. It's, uh, any thoughts? I feel like this is going down a bad road quickly. Uh, any other thoughts on this? <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's going to go down an even worse road based on the thoughts. I, all will be redeemed through the comments of Major Duck, yes. What, what's the, uh, that's exactly right. So, I mean, you see the imagery all throughout, right? And it ends right there at the very end with... With, with Jesus really referring to himself as the bridegroom, with the church being the bride. You know? And so there's no accident that the story of Ruth and Boaz plays out the way it does. You go back to the Old Testament, and you'll see God refer to his people uh, in a very similar way very, very often. And you even see it when, when, when the people worship idols. You know, what does God call it? He calls it an adulterous relationship with the idols, right? And he's saying our, our relationship is so intimate. I think, I think marriage is the most intimate relationship we can really imagine, you know, for a number of reasons. God's designed it. I mean, you know, two are meant to become one. There, there should be no relationship anyone has that is more intimate than marriage. And so if you think about that, whenever God is saying, we are, we are meant to be like that, that I'm supposed to be in you, you are of me, that whenever you go and you put something ahead of me, it's just like you're committing adultery with your wife. He's very, very specific about this in the Old Testament. It gets me thinking about something Josh Kloster was telling me the other day. I'm going to blame this on Josh. Uh, Josh was going through his Bible study, and, and, like, and, and like we all should, right? Josh does a great job of this. He starts every day reading his Bible. He keeps a reading plan to try to get through the Bible in a year. It's a great exercise for people to do. So there's a portion of time that everybody gets to whenever they're doing that where you get to the minor prophets, right? And that's just a bit of a difficult time uh, to get through uh, in your reading. And one of the minor prophets is a prophet named Hosea. And so the story of Hosea is pretty much, you know, God, God did the same thing. He, he told a story through Hosea physically, and he is telling a very, he's revealing a much bigger story underneath it. So the story of Hosea pretty much goes like this. Hosea is a prophet. Uh, am I getting this right? Yeah, Hosea is a prophet, and God tells him to go and marry a prostitute. All right, go and marry a prostitute. And he does it, he obeys, he marries a prostitute, and this prostitute does what you would expect. She continues to work, she continues to, to uh, you know, commit adultery with Hosea, uh, and every time God tells Hosea to go after her, right, to forgive her and, and go after her. And, and I, I saw a funny quote on this the other day, and uh, some people have misinterpreted that Bible passage uh, to really say that we ought to go and, and do missionary dating in the Christian church. We ought to go date people who are, who are not uh, Christians. We ought to marry people who are not Christians to try to convert them to Christianity. And that's not actually what God is saying, right, at all what God is saying. What the story is that he's revealing through us, through that story, and like I said in all reality, 
is that, is that we have been adulterous in our relationship with God, yet he continues to seek after us, right? It's a beautiful story, uh, not missionary dating. All right, so just, just to make sure. So we see that time and time again, and it ends exactly where you, you, you said, Major Duck, where, where Christ is the bridegroom, you know, the church is the bride. You get to the Last Supper, and you see that imagery uh, of, of, of the covenant that Jesus is making where he, where he takes the cup. You know, that is, that is a ceremony that comes from a, a Jewish marriage ceremony where the bride, you know, once, once the, the, the marriage between the bride and the groom has been arranged, the groom goes back and he works with his dad pretty much to build a house onto the, his, his dad's home structure. And once that room is ready for them, the, the, the father and the son go back and they have this ceremony around a table and the son will drink from the cup. And he will, and when he drinks in the cup, he's saying, I'm committing my life to you, my bride. And then the cup is passed, and the bride has the option to drink from the cup. She doesn't have to, right? And if she drinks from the cup, she said, we are going to be married. Two are going to become to one. We are committing to each other. But she can pass from the cup. So as we do that, that last supper, our communion, when we take from the cup, what we are saying is we are committing our lives to our groom. We're committing our lives to Christ, right? All this imagery spreads all throughout the Bible and is very, very consistent. I want you to see that, that play out here in this story of Ruth and Boaz. Know that it's no accident, at least I don't believe so, that redemption here comes through a marriage. So, so with those two things in mind, knowing what redemption is to buy back and knowing just how critical it is that the marriage example is used here, let's actually get into this text. And I'm just going to kind of, I'm going to stop about three or four times here in the text and just break to try to explain it and, and go through what, what's really happening here. So let me start reading uh, chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may, it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say... I will do. So a couple things in here to, to really pay attention to. One, weeks have passed from where we stopped last week. If you remember last week, you know, Ruth goes to the barley harvest pretty much uh, to glean in the field. Weeks have passed because we know, because it says that Boaz is winnowing uh, the, the harvest. So, so if you think about this, you know, uh, all the harvest occurs, and then when you go down to the threshing floor, uh, you can do this a couple different ways. You can have oxen just kind of walk over uh, the grain, and it will separate uh, kind of the, the grain from the chaff, and then you'll, you'll lift it up, you'll winnow it up, and, and, and the chaff will float away in the wind, and then the grain will fall down and can be, can be stored. Right? So we know that that process has, has gone complete. The, the harvest is over, uh, and they're going through that process when you're on the threshing floor. So a few weeks have passed here, uh, def- more than a few weeks have passed uh, from where we were in this story. And it seems like Naomi is, is kind of out of her depression a little bit. You know, she was really, really down in the dumps last time we heard from Naomi. And she's kind of changed. She's now in full-on matchmaker mode uh, for her daughter-in-law. You know, she's, she's kind of encouraging Naomi or encouraging Ruth to go to this person who is a redeemer for them to go uh, to Boaz. 
And so this aspect of redeemer, uh, kinsman redeemer, is what you'll see it you know, really known as in the Bible. It's something we talked about, I think, back in, in our first lesson. Uh, but just make sure we understand that. You know, God made a way in these situations for people to be redeemed. Uh, and, and we see redemption occur through the family in a number of different situations in the Old Testament. Uh, but you think about it, you know, all these property has been given to these family clans, the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, and within that you're trying to maintain property rights, you're trying to maintain wealth, you're trying to maintain, um, you know, family ancestry. So kinsman redeemer is really something that kind of comes from family law in the Old Testament. And we see a lot of different responsibilities come from a kinsman redeemer, a family redeemer in the Old Testament. Uh, one is the redemption of property. So, so say you had some land and you got into dire straits and you sold that land. Uh, your family had the right to go and redeem that property, almost a bit of an obligation to go and redeem that property to try to keep the family or the land in the family. If you had sold yourself into slavery, which was very common at this point in time, right? You're bankrupt. You don't have anything. You could sell yourself into slavery a slavery that's very different than what we think about with historical American slavery, right? But you could sell yourself into slavery, uh, and, and there's a whole other law in the Old Testament about the year of Jubilee we won't get into, but pretty much a, a kinsman redeemer could come and buy you back, redeem you, buy you back out of that slavery. Uh, also, the kinsman redeemer had this obligation to go and avenge your murder. So if I'm, if I'm brothers with Chris and, and somebody comes and kills him, I've got to go track him down and, and, and make sure I, I properly avenge you. I, would, I have your back. Um, either that or, you know, one of us will. You know, I, I'm a pastor, so I need to turn the other cheek. You can find somebody in this room. Now. Yeah, somebody will. Somebody will. So uh, Gene's got this. He's an ultimate fighter. Uh, all right. What we see in the book of Ruth, though, is that the role of the kinsman redeemer actually extends a little bit further. Uh, And so it extends to make sure an heir can be provided for a male relative who has died without any heirs. We talked about that a little bit in our first lesson. Now, usually this duty fell to the brother, to the brother of the man who uh, had passed away. Uh, We saw that back in Deuteronomy. But in the case of Ruth, who has no brother-in-laws at this point in time, a more distant relative was kind of expected to come in and possibly fulfill that obligation. So that's what the whole redemption, why Boaz is a redeemer. He's a bit of a distant relative, but he, he does have that right to go in and redeem Ruth. So the other thing I wanted to kind of point out here in this passage is the whole threshing floor concept. Uh, now, this is the, the threshing floor we kind of talked about as far as what happens with the grain on the threshing floor. But you see a threshing floor come up all throughout the Bible. And, and I don't think it's a coincidence that it comes up here. Uh, whenever you, you've probably heard this before where the uh, chaff is separated from the wheat, right? And you've seen that imagery occur. Think about this with, with literally that chaff blowing in the wind to be completely obliterated from what is left over. Uh, normally, when we hear this threshing floor talked about in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New, the threshing floor is a place of judgment, right? It's a place of judgment. So, so if you look in Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, when John the Baptist is speaking, and he's talking about Jesus who is coming, uh, John the Baptist says this. He goes, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork in his hand, he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff, which would blow in the wind, the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Right, so we've, we've got a judgment motif really occurring there. And then in Matthew 13.30, Jesus says in a parable, he says, Let both grow together until the harvest. Talking about the weeds and the wheat together in the field. He says, let them both grow together in the harvest. And at the time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat into the barn. Right. So I just want you to start to piece together this story. Boaz is a redeemer, right? And Ruth is getting ready to go to the place, the threshing floor, where the threshing floor is being used all throughout the Bible as a place of judgment. So let's just stop there, and we'll keep going, and you'll see this pick up. So, everyone intrigued, right? It's an interesting story, isn't it? It's just a fascinating story. It gets better. All right, so let's go to, to verse 6. It says, so, when, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. She uncovered his feet and lay down. So I'm just going to get this out there right now. This sounds a bit odd, right, that, that, that she would uncover his feet and lay down. She's coming up to this guy at night. Uh, Naomi told her to do whatever he asked. You know, it, we read this with our minds, and we could really assume something that is not meant to be told in this story. So, so pretty much when Ruth goes to his feet, this is meant to be a sign of, of submission, humble submission to Boaz. And, and a lot of commentators would actually say that this opens up an opportunity for immorality to occur and even suggests that Naomi is telling Ruth to open herself up for immorality. But there's nothing else in this text that would actually lead us to believe that. If you go back to the way Boaz was spoken of, earlier here in this book, he was spoken of as a worthy man, right? An absolutely worthy man. Uh, a man that Naomi could feel confident could, that Ruth could go to and that she would be protected, she would be respected. Uh, and we, we also are told nothing but good things about Ruth. She has a hard work ethic. She loves her mother, mother-in-law. You know, she, she is doing all she can to be faithful to, faithful to the God of Israel. So I think it's really, we, we should assume, and, and we can from this text, that there wasn't even an intention of any immoral acts occurring here. This is just a custom of a time that we don't quite understand today. Uh, but, but think about this with good character. And not to mention, when this is occurring, I want you to know the story being revealed is a story about Christ. And in the story of Christ, there's no imperfection in Christ, right? There's no ulterior motives in Christ. So I think we can trust here that Boaz has the right uh, intentions, and that Ruth and Naomi also have the right intentions at this moment. All right, so we will keep going through here and see what happens after she uncovers his feet. Um, at midnight, so starting there, verse 8, at midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. For you are a redeemer. I really like this, and there's a lot here in this. 
when, you know, Boaz rightfully would be startled. There's, they're in the dark, and he can't really see what's going on, and he wakes up, and his feet are uncovered. You know, it's, 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 it's a rightful thing to be startled. I think I would be startled if, if the same thing occurred. Uh, if you kind of think about where they are on the threshing floor, it's normally flat, and there's normally the threshing floor is placed where there could be a lot of wind flow uh, because you want to be able to, to, you know, separate the chaff and allow the wind to blow the chaff away. So he probably, I, I honestly just thinking about this, I suspect Boaz smells Ruth uh, before he actually sees her and hears from her and everything because we saw back that she had anointed herself with oil and perfume. So, so he probably knows that a woman is there. And what I love about this is, is Ruth here, what, what she says to this is that I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. She's really, she's really putting Boaz's own words from prior in this book back to him and giving him the opportunity to answer his own prayer. If you remember, whenever he comes into contact with Ruth, he knows her heart and he says, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord, you know, really be kind to you. She's giving him the opportunity to play a part in his very own prayer by being a redeemer. And, you know, there's nothing for us to, under, to, to think at the moment that Boaz had been chasing this or had been, you know, uh, implying that, that he wanted to be the redeemer in this situation. It looks like Naomi really is trying to orchestrate these events to occur. Uh, but, but Ruth is giving him that opportunity. Spreading the cloak over. So, for I am your servant, uh, spread, spread your wings over your servant. You know, think about that, that imagery again. We talked about this before, the, uh, the chicken who is putting her wings over her chicks, right? Uh, the ability to protect. You know, this is really showing, you know, Ruth is desiring the warmth and the protection and the security that comes through redemption through that relationship. Now, now what's interesting about this book of Ruth is that we get this nuance in here that this kinsman redeemer, you know, Boaz in this particular situation, it doesn't appear that he actually has the obligation to be a redeemer to Ruth. He doesn't have to do it. it had, had he probably had this obligation, I, I would think, based on his character, he would have already gone and said, I need to fulfill my commitment. It seems like he has a right, but it's not mandatory that he, he fill this role as redeemer. So, so in this story, you know, Ruth is really pleading with him uh, to take on this role. So now... I want you just to step back for just a second uh, to make sure we're, we're starting to understand the story being revealed in here. And, and know that Ruth was going to give us, this whole book is going to give us a complete picture of the entire gospel. So, so knowing that, do you think that as you're starting to see this, this pop out, do you think it's significant that this story occurs on the threshing floor? Uh, do you think it's significant that, that the story occurs in a place of judgment? As, we're, as we've seen grace and we've seen this redemption starting to occur, is it significant to you guys that this occurs in a place of judgment? Think about that for just a second and talk about it, and then uh, let's come back and, and meet. This is a Cole Fakes question. Uh, Ruth would have been in her late teens, early 20s probably. So I know I'm leading the witness a little bit by asking you if you think it's significant, because if I, did, if I didn't think it was significant, I probably wouldn't be asking the question. Uh, so I guess I'm really more asking why do you think it's significant. And now there's someone who disagrees with me, let me know. But anyone think, anyone have any thoughts about why you think this was significant? Mr. Bennett? <laughs> yeah, but, but why, why does this story take place on the threshing floor? Right. It could be that's where they first came together, 
and rather than wait and say, you know, good to see you, I'll call you tomorrow, like yeah. we do a lot, but it all happened there, and it began there. Well, I think, so So I'll say it's a good thought. Uh, I think we know that's not the case for this reason. The threshing floor in these communities were normally shared, right? And what would happen is as you would harvest your area of the farm, uh, you kind of took turns, you know, going to the threshing floor in the community, and it was a shared resource. So, so Ruth has probably never been to the threshing floor before. Uh, she met in the fields. But Naomi was smart enough to know that Boaz is going to be at that threshing floor that night. And, and I think, you know, she wants Ruth to go to the threshing floor to have her interaction with him and to request to be redeemed. And, and I think she wants, him to do it at, she wants her to do it at night. That way, Boaz has the opportunity to reject the proposal in, in secrecy, right? Yeah. So, and go down there, too, with yeah. nobody around. Right. Yep. Yeah, and Jesus refers to it verbatim because I was thinking of the yep. chaff or whatever. So I looked it up, and I can read it if you want. Yeah, go ahead. He, uh, he says, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon. Oh, this is John the Baptist. Yep. Who is greater than I, so so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. Yep. That's harvest time. At the end, right? Yeah, this is at the end, right? You've already harvested the crops. You're going and you're separating to make sure you can actually get the grain. To you know, I, I think it's interesting here. I just think it's really interesting. I thought about this a lot, about why, why does this happen on the threshing floor? God doesn't do many things in the Bible by accident, if anything, by accident. There's normally a meaning to things. And I started thinking about this going, you know, we have to understand that the God we worship is a God who cannot accept sin, right? Judgment is a critical aspect of the gospel. It's not something we like to talk about a whole lot, but it's one of those things. It's a critical aspect of the, of the gospel. We all deserve to be the chaff that is thrown in the air and scattered to the wind. That's, that's what we deserve from our sin. And so I just think about this and I go, Ruth is going to this place of judgment, right? And if you think about us, we are walking to this place of judgment, walking closer and closer to this place of judgment. And where we find at this place of judgment, we find the ultimate judge in Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate judge. He is the guy who will do exactly what Chris said, who will separate everything. We see that over and over again in the Bible. But not only is he the ultimate judge, he's the ultimate redeemer. Right? He is the same one. The same judge also redeems us. And what I love about this is that redemption, by its definition, is to buy back. Right? There is a cost to our sin. There is a cost to redemption. And by the grace of God, something we learned about last week, by the grace of Jesus Christ, that cost was not even paid by us. Right? That cost was paid on the cross. So I think, I think I like that this occurs at the threshing floor because it ties in so many different elements of the Bible. And I, hate, I think it gives us a, a better understanding of this grace. You're going to a place of judgment, and the person who could judge you, who maybe you rightfully deserve to be judged, is also that person who through your faith, or through our faith, right, redeems us in the situation. And I think back to Jeff's lesson he gave us uh, when about know, five or six weeks ago, whenever he was talking about another story in the Bible that occurred at the threshing floor. And we see that story in David. If you would give like a 30-second synopsis of what happens there at the threshing floor in the story of David. Yeah, so, so, uh, so David has sinned by taking the census, and Israel has also you know, been in, in a period of, of sin. So God is exercising 
his judgment and the angel of the Lord is sweeping across Israel and punishing the sins of both David and, and Israel and he's you know has this massacre but he comes to this specific threshing floor of Arana, this Jebusite and at that place is where the, the Lord offers his mercy and his love and his grace and he says stop he relents at that point and he provides you know he says David now I want I, we're going we're, we're going to finish the judgment but I, but I the, the wrath is gone, but now I'm going to show you the mercy and grace. And so I want you to go and build this altar to finish this atonement. Yeah, and you think about it. So he, he, you go to that place of judgment, and at that place of judgment, you see the mercy and the grace of God shine so, so true. But it doesn't mean that there's not a cost. They just provide another way. I think it's the way you said it. You know, you, they provided another way. Just like Abraham and Isaac had, a, had the ability to provide another way on the same place where that threshing floor would go. God provided another way in that story as well. And God provides another way in our story of the gospel. The other way is that the price is paid by the ultimate redeemer. I think it's not a coincidence that all these things come, to, come together right here in this spot. So let me keep reading through this story. So, yep, those wings of protection still stay around us, right? Uh, that, that protection never goes away. Let me keep reading here. Uh, and he said, uh, in verse 10, it says, And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. This is Boaz talking. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So in this, real quick, I just want to think about this. You know, I love this part of the story because it shows us that Ruth is remaining faithful as well in this scenario. Ruth could have looked at her situation and said, the best thing for me is to go after one of these young Jewish men uh, here in this, in this town. Remember, she's in her late teens, early 20s. From all we can tell, she seems to be a worthy woman, well-respected woman. She probably could have found another man to marry. But she's being faithful to the law that, God, that her new God had given her, right? And that law <coughs> says you should seek redemption to allow everything to stay within this family. And there's a redeemer who's available. So she doesn't go after a young man. She seeks the ways of God and goes to her redeemer, who actually tends to, ends up being a pretty older, an older man. Uh, it also gives hope to all, all old men out there that there is a way, right? But, 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 but that's not the custom of the day. Uh, anyway, so I want you to see, though, that Ruth's faith is playing out here as well. So let me keep reading. It says, now Boaz keeps talking, and he says, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But he is, if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And this is just him trying to protect Ruth's reputation a little bit. He doesn't want it known uh, that she came. But we get this introduction here. There's another redeemer available, a redeemer who's actually closer than Boaz, so closer in relation to Ruth or to Naomi at this point, or Elimelech uh, at the time. And so Boaz shows a couple levels of respect here. You know, he's respecting Ruth in a very big way in this whole episode. Uh, he makes sure she is well protected, he, both physically, uh, sexually. He, he, there's no violation that occurs, uh, as well as her reputation is protected in this point in time. 
But Boaz is also protecting the reputation or, or protecting the law, right? He's saying there's a closer redeemer. My obligation is to make sure that person has first right at this redemption. We see again that that redeemer doesn't necessarily have to redeem Ruth. It's optional, apparently, because Boaz tells us, you know, if he's not going to, I will. So if you're Ruth, you leave there at that point in time getting a guarantee that redemption is coming. Let me keep reading here as we go. Uh, Uh, Okay, now verse 15, it says, And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and it measured out six measures of barley, and he put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, My daughter, until... My daughter, until you, or wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. I absolutely love this because we see Naomi come back into this story. And I want you to remember how Naomi walked back into Bethlehem. You know, she's crying out to God, and she makes that, that statement that we need to remember. She says, I left Bethlehem full, I went to Moab, and I came back empty. You know, came back empty. And so I love this language here where it says, where Boaz is telling Ruth, I don't want you to go back to Naomi empty-handed. And we saw that, that, that cry out from Naomi, and we start to see God even more visibly start to answer that cry here, where physically she is not going to be going back empty-handed. And we'll see that come to a complete fruition in our lesson next week. Uh, but you see that, that really occur. And we start to understand how this entire gospel narrative really starts to play out. Uh, I, I really, really like how at the end it says the matter will, will, they will settle the matter today. You know, Boaz is not going to rest until the matter is settled. And whenever I read that, what immediately popped into my mind is Jesus, our ultimate redeemer, being on the cross. And right before he dies, he says those words, it is finished, Right. It is settled. It's not a good start. It's not uh, going to happen in the future. It is finished. The, The matter is settled today. The price of redemption has been paid. So as you step back, I want you to piece together all the aspects of the gospel we've seen here. Right? Just, just think about the story being revealed. Every aspect of the gospel starts to come through. very first aspect of the gospel is that we have sinned. Just like Ruth, we were a foreigner to God. We, Ruth was not a child of God. She was a child of Moab, of, of the Moabite gods, right? who were not real. But, but she was not a child of God. Uh, just like that, we are not a child of God when we are separated from him from our sin. That's the very first part of the gospel. We have to understand that there is separation from God and that if, if we continue to just seek after our own ways, we would be just like the book of Judges says. We would, we would all have done what is right in our own eyes and the, and the consequence would be chaos and death. We see that play out with the fact that Ruth is a foreigner in the story. And then we see the next part of the gospel. We, we, we understand what faith actually looks like. There is something that occurs there. Just how Ruth died to herself whenever she was on the road to Bethlehem, she put her faith in God. 
we put our faith in Christ. And then we, we continue to see Ruth put her faith in this God time and time again. She, she obeys on a daily basis. When she gets to Bethlehem, the very first morning, she gets up and she goes and she gleans in the field. She goes to her Redeemer just like her God told her to do. You know, she obeys her mother-in-law. We see time and time again, Ruth consistently live out her faith. She didn't stop on that road to Bethlehem, right? She continues to live out her faith. We then see the grace of Christ come through very clearly in this story. You know, just like Boaz shows such grace to Ruth, we have to understand that God has shown us this incredible grace to a foreigner, right? Our sin, we are foreign from God. He has shown us the grace in such a beautiful way because even though we were still sinners, he came and he died for us. And then finally, redemption, absolute redemption. Through our faith, through the grace of God, redemption is possible, but a price must be paid for our redemption. It must be bought back. And luckily for us, the person who is both capable of executing the judgment is our ultimate redeemer. We approach this judge, we approach our ultimate redeemer at the threshing floor, just like Ruth did, and it is there that we experience his grace and his mercy. Right. You get to see the entire, entire story of the gospel come to fruition and understand just like Boaz was going to settle the matter instantly, Jesus Christ settled the matter for forever on the cross when he says it is finished. Right? You see the entire story come out. And it made me think back as I was just finishing up this lesson, writing it, that you know we worship a God who does not break his promises. It's one of those principles we covered as we went through the Old Testament. You know, we worship a God who does not break his promises. And we talk about the gospel all the time in church. You know, we, we use that word a whole lot. And I want us to see here with this story that, that God is revealing the gospel to us in its complete true form 1,100 plus years before Jesus ever comes to this earth. He's telling us it's going to happen. He's making a promise to us in this story that this gospel is going to play out. And what I kind of stepped back and thought about is, is we're now on the other side of that history, right? We're on the other side. We're 2,000 years on the other side of that history where redemption has occurred for us, right? And, and I just, the more and more I thought about it, the more I, I thought to myself, do I live in the awesome wonder knowing that my price has been paid? in absolute, utter appreciation that something I was not capable of paying for myself, no matter how good I was, no matter how hard I worked, no matter what I did, it was a price I was not able to pay. That price has already been paid. That price has already been settled. And it's not something I shouldn't expect because it was a promise God gave to me 1,100 plus years before Jesus ever came. Right? Do I live in awesome wonder of that fact? And so that would be my challenge to all of us this week. It's just every now and then, step back and realize, do I really, am I in awe of it? Is there a wonder in my life? Because I know that that price has been paid. I see the gospel, just like the gospel is played out for Ruth, the gospel has been played out in my life. If we have faith in Christ, the price has been paid, we have been redeemed. Praise God. Let me pray for us, and let's go. Father, thank you again for today. Thank you for the beautiful weather you've given us. Thank you for the beauty of your creation that we get to experience. We know that there are so many gifts of God that are all around us today, um, many of which are sitting in this room. The brotherhood we get to experience in this room is a gift from you, and we appreciate that. 
But as we step back, we want to thank you today for the gift that you paid on the cross. We want to thank you today for our redemption. We have been emancipated from our own slavery. We have been set free from something we had no ability to set ourselves free from. It was only you. You were the only way. And you made a way. You made a way to experience, for us to experience that freedom. And you didn't have to do it. Just like Boaz did not have to redeem Ruth, you did not have to do it. But we appreciate that you have, and we appreciate that you too take joy in this relationship that we have with you. May you be with us today. May the Holy Spirit guide us. May we be the leaders in this community and this church that you need us to be. We thank you today. In Jesus' name, amen.